Um, I love college sports, specifically college football. But I just I, I'm amazed at these the what these men and these young women can do physically. To, to watch a guy take an inbound pass with .9 seconds on the clock and hit a three-pointer at the buzzer to win a basketball game, is, it amazes me that someone can do that. Several years ago, I, was, I won a, a kind of a, a package to go to a, a UVA game, and I got to go to the UVA-Miami uh, game. And during the, the game, one of the parts of the award or the parts of the prize was we, I would, me and some of the other winners got to go down on the field at halftime. And so about eight minutes left in the game, they took us down to the, the sideline uh, right before the half ended. And so we, we spent the last you know, eight minutes of the, the first half on the sidelines watching the game, and it was an incredible. And one of the final plays of the half, UVA was behind, but they came back and won that game. Amen. It was one of the last great ones. Uh, but they, they, during the last part of the half, uh, UVA was driving down, and, and Matt Lambert dropped back to pass, and he threw a pass to Kanan Severn, and Kanan Severn made a diving, one-handed catch to fall into the end zone and get a touchdown and take UVA ahead. It, it was an incredible play, and as he did that, I was standing on the goal line watching it happen. And if you, if you Google, you know, the greatest catch ever made, uh, one of the, you know, if you Google this catch, you'll see a guy on the sideline jumping up and down like an idiot, and that's me on ESPN. And I got to see this just incredible play. And as I saw the skill it took to jump in the air, grab the ball, bring it in, tuck it and fall, not drop the ball. I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I'm captivated by what these men can do. But there is a huge difference of being captivated by what someone can do and being captivated by that person. Let me explain. I was captivated by what Cain and Severin could do by making that diving one-handed touchdown catch. But I'm not captivated by him as a person because I don't know anything about him. I don't know where he went to high school. I don't know what he majored in in college. I don't even know if he made it to the pros after UVA. I have no idea anything about him. All I know is he can catch a football when you throw it at him. That's all I know. This year when I was watching the UVA-Louisville game and DeAndre Hunter took the inbound pass with .9 seconds left and as he's fading back makes a three-pointer and wins the game, I was captivated by the amount of focus it took for him to to, to execute that, to catch the ball, jump up, and shoot a three-pointer and make it with such a little bit of time left and the entire game on the line, the amount of pressure that he was under, the ability to do that. Man, I was captivated by his ability, but I don't know anything about him. I don't know what his dad does for a living. I don't know if he grew up knowing he was going to play basketball. I don't, I don't know what, what his goals and his dreams and his aspirations are. I'm captivated by what he can do, not by him personally. As believers, many of, most of us, I believe, are captivated by what God can do. We're in awe of what he does for us. We look at his creation. One of the things April got me uh, for Father's Day was a hammock. And I just love going out at night and laying in a hammock and just turning the lights off in the backyard and just looking at the stars and just amazed that God created all of that. And we're amazed at, at his power and we're amazed when he, when he heals us or when he, he answers a prayer, or when he does a great miracle we read about in the Bible, incredible things that he does. And we're just amazed at what he can do. 
And that's, that's wonderful. We are called to be captivated by what God can do. But too many of us, we're captivated by what he can do, and we're not captivated by who he is. We're not captivated by his holiness, by his love, by his grace, by his mercy, by the very characteristics that make him up. It's good to be captivated by what God has done, but the purpose of the blessings that God does to us is to make us believe something about the nature and character of God. Our affection for God isn't to be based solely on what he can do for us. Our affection is to be based on who he is. And it's rare to find a believer who marvels at, who yearns at who God is because of what God has done. We see him in Scripture. The writers of the, of the New Testament, of course, they, they marveled at what God had done, but they also marveled at who God was. John, the Apostle John, in John 3, 16, he is marveling at what God has done for God so loved the world. He is just amazed that God loves the world so much that he, he gave his son and, and sacrificed his only son to, to die and be buried and rise again to save mankind. He's like, man, I'm just I'm amazed that God did that. But then in 1 John, he, he takes it farther from what I'm amazed at what God did to God's not only loved the world, God loved the world because God is love. His very essence is love. And John marveled at, yes, what God could do and God had done, but he also marveled at what God was. Peter and Paul, they were captivated by God's character. You know, Peter, never one time in his, his letters did he ever talk about, hey, remember that time God let me walk on water? You know what he talked about? God's holy. God's, God's merciful. God's gracious. He, didn't, he never one time, hey, y'all remember that time that me and God were on the Mount of Transfiguration? I got to see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and the man, that was awesome. Y'all remember when I did that? No, he, he, never, he never one time mentioned that. He just marveled at how incredible God was, at the, the character of God. There was a yearning for God. There was a desire to know God and be captivated by who he was, not just what he has done. As we continue studying through the book of Habakkuk, we see Habakkuk kind of makes that turn. Where he's, he's not anymore being amazed at what God has done or what God's going to do, but he's marveling at who God is. And when he, when he looks at who God is and he marvels at who God is, it makes him desire to be with God more. So look at your Bibles in Habakkuk chapter number 3, starting verse number 1. <clears throat> A prayer of Habakkuk. The prophet upon Shiganoth, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath, remember Mercy. Now, there, what Habakkuk's saying here is incredible, and it's a long way from what he said in chapter number one. Remember how he started the book in chapter number one, angry at God, confused at what God was doing, coming to God and saying, God, I don't know what you're doing here, but it's wrong and it makes no sense and I don't like it. You're letting your people be wicked. You're letting your people worship false idols, and I don't understand why you are letting this wickedness continue. He is angry. He is confused and he is, he is speaking out to God, not saying, God, you're awesome, but saying, God, you're making a mistake. Remember God's response to him? He said, I'm not putting up with injustice or wickedness. I'm about to judge it. Matter of fact, I'm sending the Chaldeans to discipline 
my people. And he tells Habakkuk, but Habakkuk, you got to remember something. You're one of my people. And discipline is coming to you as well. Just so you know, Habakkuk, I'm sending the Chaldeans to discipline you and the nation of Judah. And God, in his mercy, he gently teaches Habakkuk how he operates and how he sees things. He, he explains to Habakkuk, there's a difference in discipline, what Judah is going to receive, and wrath, which is what the, the Chaldeans are going to receive. Discipline, God tells them, is for those who God loves. And it's not out of anger because of a crime committed or a sin, a sin done. It is out of love to correct and train and discipline his children to be what he wants them to be. God's telling Habakkuk, here's what I'm going to do, and here's why I'm going to do it, and here how, here's how it's going to work out. And in chapter 3, Habakkuk, he's no longer questioning God. He's no longer confused. He's no longer worried about what God is doing. He's saying, God, you're going to do what you're going to do, and it's right. You're going to do what you're going to do, and I trust you. But he can finish this, finish this, but God, when you do what you're going to do, when you discipline your people, remember to have mercy. As you work that which you're going to work, remember your people. But then look at number, verse number three. God came to me in Teman, and the Holy One from the Mount of Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Now, he's not just looking at what, is God, what God is going to do. He, he trusts that God's sending discipline for a purpose. And he understands, God, you're sending the Chaldeans and you're doing it. I don't like it. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be pleasant for me, but I understand it and I'm for it. And since you're going to do it, I know it's out of love and I know it's good. And so, Lord, I trust that and I understand that. But he's not just marveling at what God's going to do. He is marveling at who God is. He goes, God, your splendor covers the world. That is who you are. Are. He's gone from being captivated by what God does by being captivated and yearning for who God is. And he's rejoicing. Pain is coming. And he's rejoicing. Discipline is coming. And he's praising God. The Chaldeans are still going to invade. And Habakkuk says, God, you are incredible. He's rejoicing in who God is because he understands that what God is doing reveals his character. He understands that as God sends discipline, it shows his love for Habakkuk. And he says, God, since you love me and since you are love, I trust anything you're going to do. That's an incredible turnaround from chapter 1, where he's like, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, I know better than you. Step aside, let me handle it. And it was like, God, I trust whatever you do. Sin discipline, sin whatever, God, I trust what you're going to do. And in the middle of all of this, he is yearning for God. He is yearning to, to see God. He is yearning to know God more and to be closer to God. He started out angry, confused at God, but now he's thinking he could do better than God, but now he is yearning for God. He is amazed at who God is, and he has a desire 
to know God more. Where did that come from? God didn't give him what he wanted. In fact, the pain that Habakkuk said, I don't want to come, was still coming to him anyway. He is yearning for God because when he cried out for God, even in anger, even in confusion, God answered him. God didn't answer the way he wanted, but God still spoke to him. Just think about that for a minute. In the great vastness of the universe, one little speck in Judah starts complaining, and God hears him, and God answers him. Then God reminds Habakkuk in his answer, he goes, Habakkuk, you're my covenant people. I made a promise. I'm going to lead you into exile, and there I will purify you, and my purposes will come to pass. And Habakkuk realized that the all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing creator had heard and answered him, and it drove him to want to know God more, to have God talk to him more, to correct him more and love him more. Another reason that he yearns for God, another reason he is captivated by the goodness of God is, is he understood that God was good even when things didn't work out the way he wanted. Life for Habakkuk is not pleasant. Now, there, there's this idea that if you, if you follow God, you're, you're never going to get sick. You're never going to have trouble. You're always going to have a bunch of money in, the, on the, in your pocket. It, it's crazy and unscriptural. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, you follow me and everything will be peaches and cream. No, God says, hey, you follow me, you're going to have persecution. You want to live for me, you're going to suffer. It's going to be painful. It's going to be confusing. You're not going to want to know why. You're not going to understand why. But if you follow me, it's not going to be roses. It's going to be bad. But it is all because I love you. We can miss the reality here, but as we continue through Habakkuk, when Habakkuk's done... Real people, you know, we think, we kind of look at the Bible characters, oh, they're just, they're, you know, Bible characters. They're like, you know, Larry the Cucumber and the Bob the Tomato. They're little veggie tales that we don't really care about. They're real people. Real people are going to die. And during this time, even today, but during this time, when a nation got invaded by another nation, especially a wicked, vile nation like the Chaldeans, it didn't go well for the nation being invaded. The men were murdered, kids were murdered, women, just atrocities happen. Real people are going to experience these things. They are going to be invaded by a godless, horrific, oppressive nation. They're going to be overrun and they're going to be dragged into captivity. Life hurts. But God is telling Habakkuk that the discipline coming, it wasn't showing God's abandonment of Judah Rather, it was showing God's love for them. It was showing his presence in their life. And, and Habakkuk was able to look at that and say, God, I know this is going to hurt. I know I, I'll, I may die in this, God. The Chaldeans may kill me. I may lose loved ones, God. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know in everything you do, it's good. Because it's out of love. Because it's out of a desire to draw me closer to you. So Habakkuk, he, wasn't, he was coming to God and desiring to be closer to his presence and his love. Even when his people reject him, even when they turn their back on him, even when they run against him, even when they sin against him, God is reminding Habakkuk, I will never abandon you. 
And Habakkuk is just in awe of the goodness and splendor of God, and it causes him to yearn for God. That type of yearning for God, even, even in pain, it's rare today. So this morning, I want to simply answer the question, why don't we yearn for God? Why don't we yearn for God like Habakkuk did? Well, I think there's two reasons. First reason is this one. We believe that you can't come to God. This is a lie that a lot of Christians believe. We can't come to him. Because he's, he's holy. And we, we know it in Scripture. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. And I'm not. So how can I come to him? You know, I'm amazed at the story of the gospel. That God would come down in the flesh. That God would live a perfect life. That God would die a death that I should have died, would have been buried in the grave, and rise three days later just for me is amazing. And you know why I'm, I'm so amazed by that amount of love? Because I know me. I know the wickedness of my heart. You don't. And I'm glad you don't. Because if you knew how wicked I was, you wouldn't be here. Because I'm shocked I'm even here, to be quite honest with you. But I, I know how bad I am. I know how wicked I am. And I think, why would God, the holy creator of the universe, why would he do that for someone like me? Why would he do that? You know, the Bible says, for, for a good man, many would die. But, you know, but God died for me. A wicked, vile, disgusting man. A guy who, until he was 18 years old, rejected God and denied God and cursed God. Why would God care for me? Why would God seek me out? Why would God come to me? And you know how bad you are. You know how wicked you are. You know the desires of your heart. And because we know us, and because we know how holy he is, it makes us think that we're not good enough to come to him. And here's the truth in the Bible. You're right. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough, never have been, never will be. See, at our absolute best, we're not good enough. Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as unclean thing, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. On your best day, when you get up before the sun, and you read your Bible, and you pray, and you, you do good things, and you listen to good music, and you listen to sermons, and you shut out the world, and you do everything right, on your best day, you ain't good enough. Never will be good enough. There's nothing you can do to earn coming to God. By yourself, in your own abilities, in your own righteousness, you are not good enough. The only thing that allows you to come to God. The only thing that makes you worthy is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only through his death, burial, and resurrection and accepting his gift of salvation can we be even imagine having the ability to come before God. But here's the thing. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because of his, pay his death on my account, because of what he has done, the Bible says now I can come boldly 
before the throne of grace. Not because of me, in spite of me, all because of him. Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he had made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is the worst trade-off for God imaginable. It's the best for us. We gave him our wretched, vile, disgusting sin. He took it and gave us his righteousness. And because him giving us his righteousness through his death, burial, and resurrection, now we can come before God. We can come boldly to the throne. We can approach God and say, God, we love you and want to be closer to you than we've ever been before. He did all that because of his incredible love for us. And the pain that was coming, Habakkuk didn't see anger. He didn't see wrath. He didn't see judgment. He saw God's love. He said, God, you love me enough to hurt me. So, Lord, I want to be closer to you than I am right now. He saw that because of that love, he was able to come to God with his complaints, and God would listen and answer. You ever try to call a big company and complain about something? It don't work real well. I have a, you know, I have an iPhone. I have two of them now, actually. My, other, my first, the iPhone I, I, I want to have, have an iPhone 7S. You know, it's, it's, it's great, a lot of memory, it was fast, I loved it, it was red. I love that phone. Well, I updated my phone several weeks ago, a month ago, and the update that Apple sent me, it wasn't something, I didn't drop it, I didn't flush it down the toilet. I updated their software, their update fried my hardware. I didn't, they did it. I call them, they admit it, yep, we did it. We've been frying phones left and right. I'm like, well, were you gonna fix this phone? Like, yeah, sure, we'll fix the phone for you, no problem. So I had an appointment to go to the Apple store, and, and well, you know, Parker broke a leg, and I didn't get to go. And so I called back last week. I was like, look, I had this appointment, but some things happened. I wasn't able to make the appointment. Because, you know, they're like, well, you, you know, we can't, we can't ship you your phone. You've got to drive to Christiansburg to drop off your phone. I'm like, well, fine. You broke it, but I'll go through the effort. So I called them, like, yeah, great. Uh, can I? And they finally said, oh, well, you don't got to drive if you don't want to. You can just ship it. We'll send you a box. You put the phone in the box, ship the phone to us. We'll fix it, and back to you. Great. So they said, we sent you a confirmation email. Can you check your email? Make sure. It's I said, great, sure can. So I clicked the email, and it says, click here to confirm. And I clicked there to confirm, and it said, pay $350. And so I'm like, why is it asking me to pay $350? Well, that's what it costs to fix your phone. But you broke my phone. I didn't break my phone. You broke my phone. You told me you broke my phone. Well, we know we broke your phone, but we're going to charge you this to fix your phone. And so I'm like, well, let me talk to a manager. I get to a man, and I can complain and complain and complain. And you know what? They're like, we don't care. You know why? Because I already bought the phone. They already have my $800 for that stupid piece of junk now, and they want 350 more. So, I mean, you can complain and complain and complain, and you know what Apple says? We don't care. And you know why? Because they know I'm going to buy the next one when it comes out. Because I'm stupid like that. And we're all stupid like that. But you can, call to, you can complain to God, and God will hear you and answer you. He won't answer you always the way you want to. He won't always come and say, Habakkuk, I get it. I'm, I'm going to stop the Chaldeans. I'll, 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 I'll make it right. Just don't worry. You, you can stay comfortable. You can stay in peace. You can stay in. No, either. Habakkuk, I love you. And because I love you, i got to hurt you. But there's a purpose behind it. And there's good in it. And when we understand that God sometimes hurts us 
because he loves us, when we complain and we don't get the answer he won't, we can still say, God, you're still good. And I'm still in awe of you. And I still yearn for your presence. Habakkuk realized that through Christ he was able to come to God, and so can you. Do not believe the lie that Satan will tell you that you can't come to God. Because here's a wonderful truth. If you are a child of God, no matter how wicked you are, because let's be honest, we're all wicked. Satan, so, we can, oh, I'm, I'm, you're more wicked than me, probably. Doesn't matter. You're, we're all wicked. But because of his great love for us and his sacrifice for us and his burial and resurrection for us, because of what he has done, we can come to God. Don't listen to Satan when he says, God won't hear you because you're too bad. Doesn't matter. The right, if you're saved this morning, the righteousness of God gives you the honor and the privilege to come before him. Marvel at his love. Marvel at his desire to be with you and develop a yearning to love him, to know him more. But there's a second reason I believe we, we don't yearn for God, and it's more dangerous than the first one. We believe we don't think we need God. This is even more dangerous than the first one because we, we get so used to doing things on our own that we become practical atheists. We have problems, we can fix it. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll take this pill. and don't Look, I'm not, I'm not saying if you get sick, don't go to the doctor and take a pill. I take a lot of them. When I get a headache, I take a Tylenol. Actually, I take like five because I don't like headaches. So you, I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, just if you had more faith, you would trust God. No, God gave us medicine for a purpose. But we get so used to thinking, well, I'll just go to the doctor. I'll just do this. I'll do that. I'll fix, I'll fix the issue myself that we get to the point that we, we don't go to God so we don't think we need God, so we live like atheists. We rely on, our so, on ourselves so much, we don't pray, we don't read our Bibles, we don't pursue God because we don't think we need Him. We say we do. We proclaim we do. We sing that we do, but we live like we don't. You know, we all sing, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. But we live like, Lord, I got this one. I need you, God, except in every area of my life, and then I'll take care of it myself. Paul thought this in Philippians chapter 3. He begins in Philippians 3, he, he begins listing all the reasons that he used to think he was worthy to come before God. Circumcised on the eighth day, Philistine, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, I'm a tribe of Benjamin, I'm, I'm this great theological scholar, I've kept the law, I've obeyed the law, I've done everything right. And so Paul, he begins listing all the things that he had done in his own strength to prove his worth and, to, and, and, and the ability to come before God. But he realized that all those things didn't show his need for God, they proved to God that he didn't need God. They proved, to, they proved that Paul thought, I am so good, I don't need God. So in verse number 8 of Philippians 3, he says, Ye doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. Now look, I like to teach all Greek. Dung means exactly what you think it is. It's manure. Paul says, all those things I used to pursue, I used to desire, I used to want, they're like manure to me right now. Now, I like manure in my tomatoes, but that's about it, right? It ain't worth a whole lot. 
He says, I count it but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be made conformable unto his death. Paul is saying all those things I did to earn favor showed that I trusted myself and I didn't need God and I don't want them anymore. I I gladly get rid of all of those things. There's religious trappings, those things I used to trust in. I get rid of all of them so I can have more of God in my life. I want him. Even in pain, Paul says, I want God. Habakkuk has gotten to the point where he understood that when everything is bad, when everything stinks, he still wanted God because he knew he needed God. Here's the truth we need to get and we need to live. You need God. For everything, you need God. In every area of your life, in every situation of your life, every day that you live, you need God. Look, when life is great, you need God. When life stinks, you need God. More than you need air, you need God. You need to pursue Him. You need to have a yearning to know Him, to see Him, to talk to Him, to have Him talk to you. We, you know, too often we desire the newest episode of our favorite TV show more than we desire to spend time with God. In Luke chapter 5, some men, some Pharisees, they, they come to Jesus and they are they're trying to trip him up and they, they're trying to get him in trouble. And so they ask him a question. They say, we notice the disciples of, of John and the Pharisees, they, they, they fast and they pray a lot, but your disciples don't. Your disciples don't pray at all. They don't, they don't fast at all. Why is that? You, you say you're the Messiah, but your, your, your followers aren't being as holy as we are being. They don't seem to be as righteous as we are. You know what Jesus answered them? He says, why would you don't fast at a wedding feast? The bridegroom's here, why would they fast? When you go to a wedding, you don't, you don't fast and mourn and, and pray. You, you eat, you dance, you celebrate. You enjoy the time together. And I'm here, so why would they fast? I'm here, why, why would they long? I'm here. The kingdom of God is in their midst. Why would they desire it? Why would they yearn for it? But then he adds something at the end of that text. He says there's going to come a time when the bridegroom's not here. And then they'll fast. And then they'll pray. And then they'll yearn. And then they'll long for God. So here's my trouble. Why aren't we fasting? Why aren't we as a people yearning for God? Why aren't we longing for Him? Why aren't we desirous of more of His presence in our life? Why are we so satisfied with where we are? Why aren't more of us provoked? If there's, if there's more to be had, why don't we want it? If there's greater joy, if there's more sufficiency, if there's greater hope, if there's deeper worship, why wouldn't we pursue it until He calls us home or He returns? Now, I can't answer that question for you, but I can for me. 
But the weight of it, the weight of that question is something you have to answer. Why are you so contented? What keeps you from pursuing God? Do you believe the lie that you wouldn't be welcome in the presence of God? I'm, I'm here to tell you, if you have Christ as your Savior, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you are welcome and encouraged to come into the presence of God. Boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. Or are you just so good that you don't think you need Him? I know you never actually say it with your mouth, but do you live with your life that you are so good you don't need God? Do you have it so good you can do it, you can handle it, you can take care of it? And you say, well, I don't, I don't know if I live like that. Well, let me ask you, do you pray? And not just ritualistically every day or over your meals. Do you desire to talk to God? Do you dig into the Word of God? Do you seek His guidance? If the answer is no to those questions, then you live like you don't need God. We have some questions to ask ourselves. If you're not yearning for God like Habakkuk did... It's two reasons. Either one, you're not a believer, you're not a child of God, or two, you're in deep need of a hurt. And God, who loves you, and because he loves you, will hurt you to help you realize your need for him. Habakkuk thought he didn't need God, so God wounded him. And now Habakkuk is saying, all I need is God. He was yearning for his heavenly father. Are you yearning for God this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father.